It's Adam Chartoff, your host of Film Wax, Film Wax Radio. It is Friday, April 9th, 2021, and this is episode number 663 of the podcast. And I am welcoming back an author to the show, Glenn Frankel. Some time ago, Glenn wrote a book called High Noon, The Hollywood Blacklist and the Making of an American Classic. He has also written The Searchers about the eponymous film. And now he's back with a brand new book called Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. It's currently available in hardback, which, let's see, we'll read just a little bit of the uh, description here. Director John Schlesinger's Darling was nominated for five Academy Awards and introduced the world to the transcendently talented Julie Christie, suddenly the toast of Hollywood, Schlesinger used his newfound clout to film an expensive Panavision adaptation of Far From the Manning Crowd. Expectations were huge, making the movie's complete critical and commercial failure even more devastating. And Schlesinger suddenly found himself persona non grata in the Hollywood circles he had hoped to conquer. Given his recent travails, Schlesinger's next project seemed doubly daring, bordering on foolish. James Leo Hurley's novel Midnight Cowboy, about a Texas hustler trying to survive on the mean streets of 1960s New York, was dark and transgressive. Perhaps something about the book's unsparing portrait of cultural alienation resonated with him. His decision to film it began one of the unlikelier convergences in cinematic history centered around a city that seemed, at first glance, as unwelcoming as Herlihy's novel itself. Listen, this is just a terrific piece of writing about American cinema at a very exciting period, just on the cusp of this whole great period of new Hollywood cinema. John Voight, Dustin Hoffman, just an amazing thing. So here we go. We're going to talk to Glenn. And guess what? It's like when Batgirl used to be on occasionally on a period, uh, the occasional episode of Batman back in the 60s, we have Ileana Douglas joining me and, and Glenn for this conversation. So that is a bonus. Ileana Douglas, who is a brilliant multi-hyphenate, she's a film historian. You know, she is the granddaughter of the Hollywood actor Melvin Douglas. And his wife, of course, was uh, Helen Gahagan Douglas herself an actress and then politician. And Ileana grew up always wanting to be an actor. She, in fact, became one, but she was also always observing, always watching, always loved being on the set, even when her scenes weren't being shot because she wanted to learn and observe. And, and that has transitioned into her becoming a author and a a real film historian on her own, in her own right. She was doing a podcast before the pandemic, sabotaged it, but she was doing a show called The Film Scene with Ileana Douglas. And, uh, you know, her love of, of film and film history was quite apparent. I was lucky enough to be connected with her 
uh, a year or so ago, and we hit it off. And to my great fortune, Ileana has been occasional co-host on a number of these segments this last uh, winter, going into the spring here. And so I'm just so happy to uh, bring her back on for this conversation with Glenn Frankel, author of Shooting Midnight Cowboy. Please pick up a copy. I, I don't know what more to say, except for here they are, Glenn Frankel and Ileana Douglas, here only on Film Wax Radio. I don't hear words saying, only the echoes of my mind. People stop and stare, I can't see their faces. Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going while the sun keeps shining Through the pouring rain Going well the weather suits my clothes Banking off of the northeast winds Sailing on summer breeze Skipping over the ocean like a stone. Oh, hi, Adam. Hi. So nice to see you today. No, wait, I gotta have some. I'm gonna pour my tea. Oh, again, we're gonna call it tea. Okay, I'll go through the charade with you. <laughs> yeah, tea. <laughs> we should stop jokes about that sooner or later. Do you like my. That? This is the McRae Ranch Foundation. For, you know, Joel McRae. Joel McRae. I was gonna ask you if that's. Let's talk about Midnight Cowboy. Hold on. I'm going to do it. It's that these books have been coming out. Like, we've gotten so lucky. I know. You know. I love it. Who are we going to do next? We've, we've, like, hit three in a row that are one one better than the next or as good as the next. And what's been so much fun is that is that, you know, it's like our whole little private book club, right? Right. Exactly. Where, where we can... Yeah. I, which I prefer. I don't. I don't want group opinions. I only want you yeah. and me, and maybe the author. <laughs> no, I really. I'm looking forward to, to uh, talking to Glenn. Yes, I. Um... Because he he did the show a few years ago with the last book, the High Noon book, and yes, I, I was so happy to see this pop up in my email. Well, one of the things that I loved about the book. I mean, it says it in the tar- title, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the, ma- the Making of the Dark Classic. And so what you get in the book is not only the era, you know, of, of independent filmmakers and John Schlesinger, British director, kitchen sink reality, coming here, making an American movie, the discovery of John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. So there's so many of those pieces, but then there is the author, James Leo Hurley, 
his backstory. I love the way Frankel weaves together uh, James Leo Hurley's trajectory and Schlesinger's trajectory, you know, and then brings them all together for the making of the movie and then introduces discussing Voight. It's almost like he sets it, you know, he sets us up so that by the time we get the interviews with John Voight and interviews with Dustin Hoffman, you're really hooked. Did you have that feeling? Yes. And I, I really appreciate it. I'm like, why is he spending so much time on the author of the novel? Because this is about the making of the movie, but it starts to make a lot of sense. And I like all the central characters. Like I've read books that have done this and uh, where they, you know, they, they really emphasize how much of a, two things. One is how much of a collaborative effort it is by many more people than, you yes. know, than you might think. And then also the right moment at the right time how just this congruence of incredible talent at the right moment. And, you know, and also just how much on the cusp of so much the country was at that particular moment in time, like, you know, gay, you know, the gay subject and, um, you know, New York city where, and the country where that movie making for that matter, we're just on this cusp of this whole new time in 1967, 66, 67, when they were shooting it. And, pre-production you know into production like it's just so the book is really a great way into that whole thing yes all the little um all the contributions you know from the the song to yeah costume designer the great ann roth who i was i somebody again little i get the i was privileged enough to work with uh ann roth Wow. And the DP Adam Hollander of Midnight Cowboy and John Schlesinger. Unbelievable. And uh, I've seen Dustin Hoffman and John Voight on stage. That's my only. Me too. Not John Voight, point. though. Where oh, you have, he, I saw John Voight in The Seagull. Oh, okay. On, on stage. It was, was excellent. That, was that Mike Nichols? You know, no, I'm not sure. Who... version, right? Because remember, that was the, the thing when we were doing the Mike Nichols book, uh, that he... No, this must have been a later version. Okay. Yeah. Later version. Mm-hmm. Hey, this man was this the play? Maybe Ethan Hawke was in the play with John Voight? I don't know. We we need to go to the internet for them. <laughs> we'll do that. I know for sure it was John Voight, but it Okay. It may have been Ethan Hawke, the in Ethan Hawke play. Did you see Hoffman I, in uh, uh Death of a Salesman? And yes, of course, yeah, that's what I saw. you weren't anybody unless you saw Dustin Hoffman on stage in Death of a Salesman. If you were living in New York yeah. at that I, time, yeah, kind of a must-see ticket, you know? Absolutely. Great, great production. When I was a kid, I was trying to remember the first time I saw Midnight Cowboy, but if it was on television and then... How would that? I I don't, you know, I don't quite remember, but I saw it and, you know, I had the, for some reason I had the paperback or bought the paperback and I had the album. So I had, must've had a lot of an attachment to it. I think mainly because of the two, you know, actors in it. Yeah. You were still too young, of course, but I mean, it, it probably just, ripple i mean uh it was such a new york movie and it was such a part of the culture when it came out and the success of it that it had to leak into your as living and growing up in connecticut i mean you weren't that far from that whole 
world? Well, I probably would have seen it again in my trajectory of watching The Graduate, you know, and then, you know, discovering this. And then I think from this, I saw Catch-22, which also (laughs) had John Voight in it. So, which well, I, I saw on I, television. I'm certain I saw Midnight Cowboy on VHS, like sometime in the, probably in the 80s. I think it would have had to have been to see it a cut. I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 99% sure that I would have seen a very cut version on television. Maybe that's why, <laughs> you know, when I saw the finally in a movie theater, you know, many years later, the X rated you know when the x comes on screen i don't even think i was aware that it was an x-rated film right. until many many years later it's just your run-of-the-mill depressing story of the underbelly in your city well yes was what you else? bring glenn on or yes let's bring glenn on Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stopping still I can't see their faces Only the shadows of their eyes I'm going while the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain. I just tell you the face. I love the book. Couldn't put it down. Oh, thanks. so much fun. Totally. I don't think I could. You know, it's so funny because when I was a kid, it was such a movie buff, and I was one of those people who had the little got the little paperback. Right. Right. Yeah. Me too. Um, <laughs> wait. What? You got the paperback of what though? Of of Midnight Cowboy? The yes. You did not, Eliana. Yes, because why were you reading that as a young woman? You because we didn't know any better. That's was like the seventies. You know, you just read. It was like that's what I was thinking as I read the book. I was like, I remember reading this. Like, I must have been like, Gano, completely like, okay, so he's a male prostitute. You know, it just was like (laughs) paperbacks came out with a movie, and you often read the. The pay, it was an incentive to read uh, the paperback, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that book did incredibly well after the movie came out. It, you know, it sold like a, almost a million copies or something. So it wasn't just Ileana and me. There was no novelization of it. <laughs> Remember those? Yeah. Well, the novel came first in this case. The novel was from 1965, so they couldn't novelize the novel. Right. Well, my, my I had to get my dad, who who uh, passed away not long ago, I'm sorry, but I only mentioned because he would take me to, my parents, both of them, in fact, they would take me to, but my, my dad was worse. He would take me to like, I was, a, you know, Chinatown. I was, you know, right. I'm, I'm like, and, and he, then he would, but he would cover my eyes when, you know, the, the nose slit would happen because he was a good parent. He was a responsible parent. So he, right, didn't, right, want to, right. he didn't want to expose me to that. But it, it, I will give them credit for not taking me to Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> but although I, I, I did, my cousin, I grew up in my big cousin, uh, older cousin, she had in her East Village apartment, the poster, a big uh, inner and I was always fascinated by it. I was always wondering, what is that movie? What is that? It just stuck in my head. Incredible poster. 
Yeah, yeah, it was beautifully done. And uh, my parents wouldn't even let me go see Tom Jones when I was a kid. So, you know, yeah. I, I had to wait to run off to college to see the, all, all these things. But. We saw, I saw everything. I've very, I've told the story many times of how I suffered through the servant, the double feature of the servant and death in Venice. Wow. <laughs> I didn't, which the, and I rewatched The Servant recently on Criterion, as well as Far From the Madding Crowd, mm-hmm. and uh, just loved it. Just loved that whole series. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, your folks were um, still under the influence, right, of of the sixties, as I obviously it was. <laughs> <laughs> My folks were not. <laughs> it was happening in our backyard, they were hippies, so <laughs> there's no real difference between the the movies in our backyard. Um, I wanted to ask you before I want to ask my favorite thing, which is in reading the book, one of the great things you get out of it is it's one of the most collaborative films and you wonderfully piece that together like a quilt, The, the costumes by Anne Roth, the, the addition of the, of the music and the soundtrack and the casting the casting of course by Marion Dougherty and so was that something you thought about going into the book or something you pieced together as you were writing it and interviewing everyone I, I just stumbled into it like so many of the things I end up doing I mean I knew it was going to be a rich subject but I had no idea either in terms of the the gay context, what I was getting into, and that was great. And then these incredible people um, who make the movie and, you know, John Schlesinger for all his anxieties and his up and down, you know, worries. He was a great sort of band leader. And, and, you know, and, and these folks, the ones who are still around who I could talk to, they loved working with him. And, uh, you know, so I was just fortunate because that, you know, you're a writer, you know, that really helps power the narrative when you have so many interesting people um, who just kind of show up in the course of the book. And and, um, no, that I had no idea. I had never I'd only barely heard of Marion Dougherty. Mm -hmm. I know anything about her. Um, And that's the beauty of what I do, because, you know, unlike you, I have no experience at all in in motion pictures and the industry you know you got a few friends here and there but nothing and it's not even like good old mark harris who i who's my idol you know who has so many connections and through tony and everything i don't have any of that i just kind of get started and so i just stumbled into this wonderful crew of people at the height of their powers right all brought together by by jerry hellman and john schlesinger well, now that you mentioned stumbling into it, but it seems like as you do delve into your subject, that you are eventually discovering that it, it feels less and less arbitrary in the context of your body of work. Yeah, like it, it, no, absolutely. something going on there with those books that you're writing. Well, well, guys, stumbling is the right term. I found this little subgenre of books that are about the movie, but also about the historical era that the movie reflects. And um, I mean, you've said this too, Ileana, I've been, you know, uh, movies are a great vehicle for looking at the past, for looking at the era they were made in. They reflect yeah. the culture of the era, whether they mean to or not. So 
Uh, Molly Haskell says they're a looking glass. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's what my books, that's my little subgenre. I, I, yeah, I'm just an old Washington Post reporter. I mean, I know about history a bit and I can, you know, and I'm excited by that, but fine, latching onto this thing where I've got a great movie to serve as my vehicle and to get you under the skin of the era, really, in a way, I, you know, I just, you're a, I'm just a lucky guy. <laughs> you are. Well, in era, not only the era, but the locations. This is a, a could work as a New York City travelogue on a certain level. You get you spent a lot of time painting a picture here uh, about New York City at that time too. And I that I was really lucky because I, I went to Columbia between 1967 and 71. Oh wow! And I had no money in my pocket, and I you know of course I walked the streets a lot because it was so interesting. And uh, I went to movies on 42nd Street. Never even to a porn movie. I should I just double features, or I think I saw The Wild Bunch on 42nd Street for the first time. I loved movies, so this was this gave me some sort of anchor in how I felt about New York and what struck me as to what a lonely, difficult place it could be. I had personal, nothing like Joe Buck, but some personal experiences as an 18-year-old walking around town. And so that that helped me. But it was very daunting to think about writing about New York in the 60s. Um, uh, fortunately, you, you latch on to some characters and you hope they're going to take you through it. And uh, more or less, that's what happened. I wanted to go back and ask uh, about the author, James Leo Herlihy, because again, as I was reading the book, I said, oh, my God, I didn't know he wrote Blue Denim. You know, like Blue Denim was a movie and a play that I was very well aware of. We used to do it in acting school scenes from Uh, Denim. I never in a million years would have associated James Leo Herlihy and didn't know he was an actor. Right. So didn't know he was friends with Aeneas Nin. So that's a wonderful section two of the book is explain who he, who he is learning about him. Well, that's how I felt going in. I knew nothing about him at all. I mean, and, and the fact that he was so obscure, you know, was a great opportunity. On the other hand, I was thinking Jim's going to take me through Times Square in the 60s. The handsome man, you know, out there scoring and knows, and obviously knows so much about male hustling, as you can see in the novel. Yeah. I, I thought I, you know, that was a naive thought on my part because Jim is a very discreet man and he doesn't tell me anything except what you can intuit from the novel. Nonetheless, he was, yeah, he was great, a, a great character. And um, and I, I really feel it's important. I mean, in the Searchers book, I kind of excavated Alan LeMay, the writer of the novel, The Searchers, who is a very interesting figure and, a, you know, head of the Screen Act uh, Writers Guild at one point. Um, you know, these these guys and Waldo Salk, for that matter, these are great writers yeah. who have been obscure, you know, who are obscure names now. And I, I love being able to write about writers. Um, and Hurley, he is... He's a pretty interesting guy. He, you know, he gets interviewed endlessly after this movie comes out about his his new book, um, you know, uh, this book and, and, and the book he does after this, which is, but he only writes three books in the end. And they ask him all kinds of questions, but they, they only ask him one question about the damn movie, which is, how'd you like the movie? <laughs> they never ask him about Joe Buck, say. I never could find out where Joe Buck really comes from. 
you know, I would, did he meet Joe Buck on the street? Was he Joe Buck on the street? There, there are a couple of holes in this book that, you know, I felt I really wanted to fill and couldn't, but nonetheless, yeah, he's, he's a fascinating guy. I got to meet his partner from that era, Dick Dwayne, who died recently. Mm-hmm. Dick was very generous with his time. He loved Jim still, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, it's so a, yeah. I, I just did the best I could with what I had. Is it your sense from your conversations with Dick? Was Is that his name? Yeah. Dwayne? Uh, that, that, that Jim had uh, undiagnosed depression? Yeah, self-diagnosed anyway. Yeah, uh, Jim okay. was up and down a lot. And uh, their relationship could be very tempestuous at times. Well, this uh, is because, true of anybody living with somebody with depression. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was and, and Dick wanted a quieter life. Uh, Jim was just, a, a, you know, a complex guy, up one day, down the next. He would grow tired of places and just leave, you know, that sort of thing. He hid behind his persona. He's a great actor and a very handsome man. Every, you know, people really liked hanging around with him. And he could be very kind and gentle, especially to younger people uh, like Jeffrey Bailey, who, who is another person who was very helpful to me and who's kind of the, the guardian of Jim's legacy now. Uh, but, yeah, it, it was he was a hard man to deal with. And hard on himself, too. Hard on himself. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm just glad I could write about him. I now have written more about Jim Hurley than anybody in the history of the world. Uh, <laughs> there's a guy out there in Oklahoma who says he's doing a biography, but, you know, let him come and do it, you know. I, but in the meantime, I, I'm so glad I was able to capture as much as I could about him. The, um, I love the other little in-60s, insight of the term that where did the title i mean yeah. i know but the title midnight cowboy where does that come from yeah well you know tracing that back it supposedly is tennessee williams describing marlon brando uh, during the rehearsals for you know streetcar uh that you know and he says that to a couple of uh, friends down in Key West at one point, and Jim either hears it direct, is listening in on that conversation because he was hanging out at the outer side of Williams's circle, or he hears it in turn from somebody who was there. Apparently, though, the term Midnight Cowboy is thrown around Times Square. I mean, and, you know, occasionally, I don't know, not today, of course, but back in the day, you see a few cowboys, people dressed as cowboys wandering around because that's good that's a good hustle, you know, for some people. So yeah. I don't think Williams invented it, but Williams used it and Jim picked it up and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and off we went. And it's a perfect title. I mean, it's just wonderful. It uh, really captures the film, per, you know, perfectly. Yeah. Um, the other thing the book does is it really does service to, you know, the, the films of John Schlesinger, who again, did not live quite, long enough and I, and I think I was in one of his last films the next best thing um oh oh gosh I, yeah <laughs> I didn't was, know you were in that yes, I was because I was neighbors as I was saying at the very beginning I was neighbors with John uh-huh. and his partner Michael uh yeah. who appears again in the book quite extensively Childers? and Michael Childers, Childers, Childers the, yeah, the great yeah. photographer and, uh, you know, when John Schlesinger asks you to be in a movie, 
Yeah. You know, what are you going to say? You know, so it was for me, it was a fun experience. And I did make him laugh because he was he asked me what I thought of Rupert. And I said, you mean Madonna and prima Donna? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's the kind of humor he would have loved. Absolutely. (laughs) And I had a, you know, I had a blast, you know, so I, because I'm the observer, even when things go wrong, it's perfect for me so um but anyway the the point is that he although cold comfort farm one of his later films did get some play yes um i just wanted you to talk a little bit about his trajectory of becoming involved in the film and then obviously starting with darling and and then his great success with sunday bloody sunday but just he's been sort of overlooked as a filmmaker yeah, he's not on, you know, when you run down the pantheon of New Hollywood, John doesn't make the cut. And, um, well, you know, I think that's unfair, but that's the way life goes. I mean, those movies, you know, stand up, the movies that he made in that era stand up to anything. Um, I see a direct tie, incidentally, between Midnight Cowboy and Taxi Driver. I mean, absolutely. You know, and, and Taxi Driver sort of Midnight Cowboy's evil twin in a way. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I love both movies. I, I'm just knocked out. I saw it, you know, I'd seen Taxi Driver when it came out, of course. And then I watched it again for this book and I was just blown away by Taxi Driver and, and could see the direct connections between those two. So John, you know, he wanted to be a great entertainer and he wanted to have great success as well as make movies that were meaningful to him. And that was a hard, you know, circle to close. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got harder and harder as Hollywood went through all those changes and, you know, um, and, you know, just making the next, the next best thing, you know, was an effort of his to still stay fresh and new and, and, and be a, a Hollywood director, but it wasn't his movie. I mean, he didn't, right. you know, he didn't initiate the project. They had stopped coming, you know, they weren't making his projects anymore. Yes. Cold Comfort Farm, which I think is a lovely movie was, um, you know, an exception to that, but by and large, he's in the service of Hollywood and, and, um, at that point, and it's not going well and, and he's not feeling well either. So, yeah, he was like an L when I, in the period that I knew him, he was like the, the great elder statesman, yeah. uh, period of, you know, which is on, which is unfortunate, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get the impression Hollywood doesn't treat its elder statesmen with all that much respect. Code for no. irrelevant. It's code for irrelevant. I mean, yeah, you know. Yeah. But well, so he comes off of uh, Far from the Maddening Crowd, which, well, well, Darling, which was a success, right? He was part right. of the John Schlesinger was part of a wave of of the angry young men sort of kitchen sink yeah. films that were blowing up in the UK across the pond, and then gave him the opportunity to work in Hollywood. Right? Yeah, exactly. They, they want him in, in Hollywood. Um, now, Far From the Madding Crowd is not a successful movie at the box office. It's a flop. And so suddenly it's kind of a mixed message. On the one hand, they've invited him and they've offered him things. On the other hand, after Far From the Madding Crowd bombs, they don't want to, you know, they don't return his phone calls and they don't call him. So it's an interesting moment where he's, he can still, you know, go, you know, he can go to MGM and all that, but, and he goes with them with this bleak novel that they've already rejected a couple of years earlier, you know, uh, and so 
he has trouble, you know, finding some place to latch on, which is where United Artists comes in, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't an easy road to get even to make Midnight Cowboy. And, uh, but he was, it brings out the side of him that is the, determined to do what he thinks is important to do to do meaningful work that he wants to do Mm. and that's always in conflict with him in some ways with you know doing something that hollywood wants him to do (laughs) (laughs) not the person not the last person i think to have undergone that kind of you know conflict he wanted both he wanted both he wanted to be successful and loved and entertaining and he is you know but at the same time he knew what he wanted to do. That's that's what made him so interesting to me. Yeah, he he. I mean, his later on career movies like Marathon Man and The Falcon and the Snowman they they are they're still very good films. You know, yeah. probably the best of his of his later work. As I said, except for Cold, I happen to love Cold Comfort Farm. I think it's a very sweet little film, British film. And Madame Suzaka, I'm, in, I'm, in, yes. I'm pronouncing it, but that's a that's a really good film. That's the one I always forget that he made. Is that what Shirley yeah, MacLaine? Yeah, beautiful little film. Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, she's yeah, terrific. I forgot about that film. Yeah, uh, it's a little film. It's nice because it it's a discovery. You know, like it's sort of under the radar for most people, but so it's a, but it's a, it's worth definitely worth seeing. Absolutely. I wanted to ask now, of course, the great, these wonderful cards that you found from the casting director, Marion Dougherty, about the casting of Dustin Hoffman, hot off of The Graduate, taking this smaller supporting role, and the discovery of John Voight, and he almost didn't get the part. Right. Well, first of all, talk about the fact what Ileana just said, that Hoffman coming off of the graduate is now like the fifth Beatle, as you put it, right? He's a superstar, a sex symbol. He's the Jewish, what are they calling him? The Jewish Cary Grant? Cary Grant, yes. <laughs> Which is hysterical. But <laughs> but did he know going into the project that he was more of a supporting, I mean, is it there on the page? Or did he, because it seemed like he was disappointed afterwards, after the film is locked and he gets, he sees it, he's like, wait a minute i'm pretty sure i was in more of the movie than that (laughs) uh the script was more or less locked though you know they spent a couple of weeks in rehearsals and he and voight were doing improv and you know some of that was then written into the script uh intimate things about their characters they were building their characters right in front of john schlesinger's eyes at these auditions at these rehearsals and it was a fabulous experience you know, it's possible for Dustin Hoffman to have two contradictory thoughts in his head at the same time. And, and the most, you know, he was a driven, I mean, you know, Ileana, having, you know, he was a trained New York actor, like what? Yeah. I mean, gone through hell to get parts, short little guy with a big nose. And, you know, and it took him, you know, nearly a decade to begin to establish himself off Broadway as a formidable performer. He was getting really good reviews. He had, you know, he had no idea he was going to get the graduate to begin with and no idea that he could ever become a movie star. And right. he doesn't only become a movie star, he becomes a kind of counterculture icon because the graduate is a generation gap movie. It's the movie of my childhood, you know, we, it, it was, and so Dustin Hoffman suddenly is, is a big star but but having made fun of Hollywood all those years with his pals Gene Hackman and, and Robert Duvall, 
He's very conflicted about being a big movie star, very yeah. conflicted because everybody's saying, well, Mike Nichols created him and, you know, directed this kid through this thing. This kid is 29, 30 years old and has been around a long time already. He wanted to show them he could be an actor with a capital A. And so he really wanted this part because he saw what a great part it was. I don't know if he counted the pages exactly on the screenplay, Um but he, you know, manages, then Schlesinger doesn't want him. He doesn't want some big time new movie star to mess around with his little low budget movie. He mm-hmm. likes to create movie stars. He doesn't want to use one. Right. Uh, so anyway, he taught, Hoffman meets him in a famous at the Automat at you know, midnight and does his thing. And by 5 a.m. he's worn Schlesinger to a frazzle, but <laughs> Schlesinger admits, you fit in here. You're fine. And he hires him to do it. So Hoffman loved working on it. I mean, it was a complicated time in his life because everybody wants a piece of him. And, they, you know, Time Magazine does call him the fifth Beatle. I always thought that was Brian Epstein, but never mind. You know, (laughs) he was so big. He was so big. He was so, you know, so symbolic, you know, somebody we all admired so much. And he does get cold feet at the end, partly because he's a little angry that some of his stuff has ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, there were a sort of chaplain-esque physical comedy scene at the at the psychedelic Andy Warhol style party. All that gets left behind. Everything, every scene has John Voight, and they don't have him. And he's he understands it on one level, of course, but on another level, he is a big movie star and he's got a big ego and he, you know, wants in. Well, I, I, I think clearly that if uh, John Wayne had not been up for True Grit, it, it is, as you watch it today, it is an Academy Award performance from top to bottom. I mean, that final scene yeah. of them, it, it, it's it's unbelievable. So when I see the movie and when I first saw the movie, you know, probably in high school, I was like, how could John Wayne win over him? Now that I'm in the Academy, I understand why John Wayne would win. But, you know, when you com- it, the comparison is like, this was an actor uh, at the top of his game. So to me, it makes sense that this is the movie he would want to do after The Graduate. Just something completely opposite shows his range, his versatility, his fearlessness. Yeah. He- both of the actors that to me is what you get from the book is the fearlessness of playing these hustlers you know uh and their you know their relationship at one point Hoffman says comes to Schlesinger and says I think there should be a scene we should be we should be sleeping together we should be in the same bed so I mean He's just like, well, these are actors that were willing to go there. They were committing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing that worried him, though, at the end was uh, the fact that the movie was rated X. He's gone to a preview, to one of the first previews, and he's watched that some members of the audience have walked out, essentially at the Bob Balaban movie house, grindhouse balcony scene. Yeah, Balaban is uh, performing on Joe Voigt, you know, on John Voigt. 
Uh, and people, people were discussed, you know, some people walked out on that. And so, and then he right. finds out the movie's being rated X. He doesn't know the, the real story behind that. And he's afraid suddenly that, that he's in a porn movie of some kind, or that it's going to be treated that way. He loved, you know, he thought it was a very important movie, but at the same time, he's building a career too. So he rushes out and makes John and Mary, another movie I saw when it first came out with Mia Farrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, just this harmless little romantic, romantic. thing. Yeah. And, and only later when the movie not only does well financially, but also is crit- a critical success. And then it gets them all these nominations. He starts to come back to it. And he, he's pretty, when I interviewed him, he was pretty frank about all this. Um, I'm not a perfect person, as he put it, um, which was a surprise to me, but I, I could accept <laughs> it. Uh, you know, he, he had his he had his concerns. So on the one hand, he's incredibly brave. And I, I totally, I, you're absolutely on target. These two guys are so, it's a joint performance. It's a collaborative thing. And I love talking to each of them about the other. Mm. And they know what they did. They know, I, I don't know, Ileana, I can't think of a better pair of male actors in a mainstream American movie who are better than these guys you know they're just so and that 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 joint performance still you know resonates all these years later as one as the very very best so they're very proud of it void is too but uh it wasn't easy and and void had no doubts he didn't you know he was coming off of nothing they were paying him seventy thousand bucks nothing to lose he had nothing to lose and he loved he loved it it was hard but he loved every minute of it hoffman was a more complicated person I want to mention one thing since you brought up the X-rated subject is that back then in that time leading up to the film, X was not what it became a short time later. It didn't necessarily apply to pornography, which wasn't really a commercial thing like it became in the early 70s. It was not long after where those became blockbuster, you know, pornography became hip. There were movies that were assigned X because there was just a mature factor to the film that they wanted to protect from the kids, from young people. And that was all it meant, even though it could obviously still have an impact on the box office. Uh, But it wasn't suggesting it was pornography because that wasn't a thing yet. Well, that's true, though. Hoffman said he was worried about that. I mean, you know, the rating system had actually gotten put into reform uh, the way movies were treated. Like They got rid of the old production code that system of self-censorship that was you know very creaky and had been destroyed basically by a number of adult movies in the 60s including who's afraid of virginia wolf so they put in the rating system yeah to try to give more flexibility and to allow for more adult themes one thing they needed you know they knew there was a younger audience out there that was beginning to dominate the box office and they wanted to reach that audience and the audience wasn't really that interested in the kind of old genres that that hollywood was so comfortable with so yeah the 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 rating system was designed to give people like Schlesinger more room there's no way they could have done this movie five years earlier but the rating system did give them some breathing space to do what they wanted to do but you're right it was in the process of formulating what was what and what you could do and of course the thing that i learned that surprised me was that it wasn't rated X originally by the ratings board. It was rated R because they understood what a serious, important movie it was. 
uh, Arthur Krim, the head of United Artists, who also loved the movie, but it made him uncomfortable, especially the gay sex scenes. There's no nudity. There's, you know, but there's enough in there that he, he, he felt queasy. And he, you know, he goes and talks to a psychoanalyst in New York and who says, yes, this is these kinds of scenes. You know, they not only thought of homosexuality as a, as a disease, but as a communicable disease, something that could be passed on to, and I guess, uh, you know, impressionable young men like me. I, you know, I, yeah, I didn't realize I was under, it's like, you know, COVID. <laughs> I, I mean, so they rated it X. Arthur Krim rates it X. He doesn't tell, you know, that story isn't told in public at the time. But there it is. And and so, you know, and Hoffman was nervous. He was he was both loving being a great actor and a character actor. But at the same time, he loved his his new celebrity and the fact that he was making suddenly a lot of money making movies. So, again, he had two two conflicting things going on. with him. I wanted to uh, bring in now to the discussion, uh, the director of photography, Adam Hollander, uh, another you know, in his contributions, all the, my God, the incredible location uh, work in New York City, just astonishing. And, and, you know, again, we were talking at the beginning, a collaborative film and his contributions uh, meshing with Schlesinger. Did they get along? How was their working relationship? Well, Adam's still around and he was just such a pleasure to talk to. He's such a smart, humane just a wonderful guy and i love talking to him and he you know and i called him you know we spent a couple hours together and then i called him several times and he was after that and he was always helpful so i'm i'm very fond of him he was like 29 years old and this is his first american feature film he'd been trained in you know in communist poland just like polanski you know he was uh he knew his stuff he'd had a documentary experience like all the other folks there, neorealism, you know, was something he believed in. So he, he and Schlesinger both come out from a fairly, you know, documentary background, and they agree that they're going to shoot New York. And they're both fascinated by New York because they're both newcomers to New York. Mm-hmm. And so, and also the technology had changed. It was easier to take smaller cameras and equipment and move around the city than it would have been again five or 10 years earlier. So they 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 do scenes where they, you know, where they rope off the area and they have extras and, and you know, but they also do scenes that are stolen shots where they're in a they're in a van with a, you know, a long lens or they're in they actually build a little like wooden crate with a window <laughs> and set it up. And it's New York. So nobody nobody bats an eye. And they're shooting Voight with a long lens when he's walking down Fifth Avenue and all that. I think when you watch the movie, one of the striking things now is is the feel of New York in 1968. Um, I, I, it feels very close to home. And, and that's, they worked well together. I mean, Schlesinger, you know, at one point Schlesinger wanted to fire Adam, of course, um, because that's kind of part for the course. The things were happening slowly. The crew, the New York crew was both very good on one level, very professional, but at the same time wanted to do things a certain way. And the gaffer and the lighting people wanted a lot of lights and this and that. And it just infuriated Schlesinger at times. And Adam was kind of the go-between in a way between his group and Schlesinger. So he got it from both ends. But he's such a sweetheart. And, and you know, Schlesinger essentially trusted him 
Uh, and he, he looks back on it all, Adam, today with great respect for Schlesinger and the work they did together. He can, he, you know, he's amused by all the things that happened. But at the same time, he knows, as he said, I was working with exceptionally talented people doing something we all thought was important. And um, as you know, what could be a better experience than that on a movie set? You were talking about New York, which is the crux of, of Midnight Cowboy, those those locations. But. There was also scenes uh, in Florida where they shot, and that has an entirely different look and feel, as does even the scenes, the black and white and the different uh, choices that were done in Texas, where some of it was also filmed, the, the sort of backstory flashback parts. So was he also integral to those choices? Uh, absolutely. I mean, he's there, you know, that's the thing about Schlesinger. He's the leader of the band. He's got all these people and he's talking to them. I mean, he's not only got Adam, of course, and consulting every day and they're watching the rushes together and the amount of color in those scenes, especially that Dustin Hoffman fantasy uh, by the poolside thing. I mean, they all love doing that. <laughs> While those salts there every day and he's rewriting that that scene right up to the moment they film it he's down in florida with him running around and schlesinger had him constantly on call and roth is designing costumes she dressed all those women you know around the pool i mean she just she dressed every character in the whole damn movie it's not like edith head you know in hollywood doing the four leads and someone sews the rest of the stuff and is there consulted with so he's got his little crew schlesinger and hollander is part of this trusted group John drives them all crazy at various times because that's what he does. Jerry Hellman, incidentally, is also their producer to kind of keep things on an even keel. Michael Childers, who's John's lover, is around to keep John on an even keel. I mean, it's <laughs> like a, you know, it's a traveling troupe of people. But you're, it is it's quite extraordinary how different the three locales are are captured in that movie and how flexible. Um, uh, the decision making was and the work was and the work that Adam did again it's his first you know movie really uh, that he's able to do that but Schlesinger had a lot of experience at this point and knew what he wanted and Adam knew what his job was. You mentioned in the book which is really very disturbing uh, Jennifer Salt the actress who was in, involved with living with John Voight and also the daughter of Waldo Salt gets cast in the film. And another thing that was interesting to me in looking at the past, you know, did they not know? Did she not know? You know, you read the script and it's this, you know, you're going into this harrowing scene and then it's filmed in a really brutal, upsetting way. But it, it's almost like that's how the they were so into it that nobody thought about the consequences of playing these parts. There's a very moving moment. He said they thought it was important. I want you to talk about that, Glenn, but I do want to add uh, something that was really a nice thing to read was that John Voight did pick up on that. That was very difficult for Jennifer. Yeah. I mean, they were in a, you're right, Adam, they were in a relationship by then, John and, and Jennifer, uh, you know, and, um, he understood that this was going to be difficult. She knew it, but she wanted, you know, this is her first movie. And uh, she was great to talk to, incidentally. I mean, um, she's so smart. And uh, 
can be so cutting and, and witty about everything that happened, not to her as well as to the others. She said, we did a long interview at one point, and she says at the end, she just looks at me and says, just don't make me out to be a total bitch. You know, she's because she's so honest about everybody, including herself. At one point she said to me, I said, well, how'd you like shooting, you know, your first movie and going down to Texas? And she said, well, if you don't mind being raped, it was fine. And, and we didn't, you know, I didn't pick up on that at the time because we were talking about something else, but later on in a phone call, we talked about it and she was quite frank about it. Yes. She had read the script. She knew what was going on, but it was a great opportunity for her. She loved being in it. She wanted, this was her first movie. She's just out of Sarah Lawrence, you know, trying to become an actor. Uh, she was, she was trying to be the cool kid. She mm -hmm. said, which is to say to do whatever they wanted her to do. And you know, this game, she'll take off her clothes. Yeah. She's the cool kid. Take off her clothes. Well, they gave her a rubber suit for the, you know, for the gang rape scene, but it's Texas in August. And, you know, I can tell you, it's like a hundred degrees. And so she, she had to take it off pretty quickly. Uh -huh. And there's no choreographer. There's no intimacy coordinator. You know, they weren't trying to be cruel to her, but you know, they just went ahead and did what they did. And now looking back on it, she knows exactly what happened. And I, you know, one of my, things in the book is it's a very very male oriented story uh but i some but the women characters i was able to write about are also uh had such fascinating experiences we could go back to marion doherty because i never did answer your question about that adam but marion and then you know the, the actors that brenda and uh and Jennifer and Sylvia Miles, who has six minutes on the screen, but walks away with the first part of the movie to the point where she's nominated for Best Supporting Actress. The women were really crucial to this thing, and they all had to put up with certain kinds of things. Uh, Marion Doherty doesn't even get a credit in the movie as, as, as the casting director. Jennifer has to oh, go through this ordeal. She, well, she, she wanted to have a soul card uh in the credits marion she felt she had deserved it and it was and when they ganged her up with two other names on her title card in the credits she said then uh, either my own or take me off and you know they just it's terrible like this is the one of the most incredibly cast films of its time, maybe, and or maybe of American cinema, and um, she's not credited in the. That's just it's a crime. It, it is, and it, it says something about how women were treated uh, in that era, and in many other eras when it comes to movies. Um, she was a, you know, she she was a, a combustible person. She expected it, thought she deserved it. Lynn Stallmaster was getting a, a single card for Thomas Crown Affair. I think that was a guy, by the way. Yeah, Lynn's a guy. Exactly. Uh, and Jerry Hellman is a combustible, was a combustible temperamental guy, too. So they, when Marion sees the, the first preview, she marches up to Jerry and they have it out. And she says, you know, either give me my own card or take my name off it. And Jerry's Jerry, uh, you know, blows and says, well, your name's off it. And he told me, Jerry's still alive. He's, he's not in great health, but wow. he's, he's, uh, he was wonderful to talk to. And he regrets this very much because he agrees with what you said earlier, Adam, that she did a fabulous job of casting. I mean, John Schlesinger always said when they asked him, well, how'd you get John Voight? He's so terrific. 
how'd you choose him? And John Schlesinger always said, I didn't choose him. Marianne Doherty chose him and convinced me eventually to take him. So they, they understood what they had. Jerry says it's, it's one of the things he most regrets in his long career. Um, but there it was. And, you know, to write about that was really, again, you look for moments that tell you more than just the moment itself. You look for moments that tell you about the times that they occurred in, what was going on. You know, Marion Doherty was an unusual figure. She'd been casting theater and a lot of television, but, but you know, the studios had their own casting directors when the studio system was going but by 1968, the studio system is shedding all those extra folks. And so Marion becomes an essential person, especially in New York. And all the supporting actors are superb. Void and Hoffman are superb. And she's responsible for that. Yeah, it's interesting because you make a compelling argument in the book. You, met, you mentioned with the Academy still does not have a category for uh, best casting in a film to this day. And, and you make a compelling argument that, and this is a prime example of a film that without the casting director just would not have turned out as well. No, it's wonderful. I mean, they, the, the supporting actors all get like individual scenes with John Voight. It's like small little playlets, Bob Balbon said. I mean, he was fun to talk to also about this. And they all and they're all just terrific. And that, you know, that's not easy to do. And in the old I don't know, in the old studio system, they would have pulled people in to do it, but not the way Marion did, you know, not knowing these people and really having such a feel for New York and all these great actors. Yeah. Well, the commitment from the, you know, the scene with Bernard Hughes, I, I, like, again, there's some, I don't think I can see the movie again. I've seen it enough times, but I, I it, w- it would be too troubling. His scene in particular, talk, tell a little about the story that his decision to do something in the scene well, first, we always knew Joe Buck has told us many times in the course of the movie that he can be violent, that he's a tough person. And mostly people make fun of him for that. And Ratso says, yeah, I get it. You're a real killer, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Joe does have that in him. He's got, you know, he and Ratso are both sort of these lonely, solitary, angry, and there's anger under the surface of both of them. Anyway, Rats, you know, Joe is is... Uh, desperate toward the end of the movie to get money so he can take Ratso to Florida and perhaps save his life. Winter's closing in. Ratso is obviously deteriorating physically. When we get to, but when we get to Florida, you got to call me Rico. Yeah, he, well, he Florida's been his dream. It's not Joe Buck's dream. Joe Buck's dream is New York and beautiful, you know, and and middle-aged affluent women who he's going to service and you know and be the ultimate stud for. It's a terrible business model in the end, but never mind. I mean, it doesn't work. Anyway, so he 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 finally goes and finds this middle-aged businessman from Chicago, and they go up to the, the apartment and. And when the guy holds out on him in terms of giving him money, uh, Joe becomes violent, and it's a really brutal scene. Well, Joe Joe had his he had a, a, a nut to he had to reach to get the tick the the bus ticket. So he was, was desperate for the bus ticket, you know. So it, it, he knew what he had to leave with before he got right. in the room. Yeah. But Bernard Hughes uh, is is extraordinarily powerful and, you know, just a great, another great performance. I mean, he, he, he's weak. 
he's you know but he wants this guy you know he wants this tall handsome guy from texas he wants to have sex with him he's a bit of a sadomasochist anyway hughes tells schlesinger at one point they're trying to figure out how to make this work and and capture it and hughes mentions that he's got not only that he has false teeth but that he can push push them out without using his his fingers that he can spit out the false teeth and so and that's what happens uh right before joe buck sticks well you know we don't need to go into the details of it but the other thing so this is hughes but the other thing that this scene shows i mean the brutality of it is something that a lot of people working on it were worried about especially michael childers said this is going to make joe buck so you know uh it's going to take away all the sympathy that the audience has for joe buck but John Schlesinger and Waldo Salt, the screenwriter, insisted that mm. this had to stay in um, because they weren't making like a fairy tale, happy movie, you know, um, with a redemptive ending. They were making this was John insisting on his vision of what the movie had to be. And I think it makes the movie more powerful and more, you know, uh, more enduring because of this. But boy, it's brutal. And we don't know if he's killed this guy. You know, when Joe, when Ratso asks him on the bus, did you, you know, that uh, Joe Buck says, just shut up, you know, yeah. uh, he doesn't want to talk about it. But that's what he did in order to help um, protect and defend and, and the, the person that the only person he cares about, which is Ratso. Well, you, you really get the feeling of the underbelly of New York City, which exists today which always exists we just don't notice it we walk by those people you know but yet they are i mean where they live and how they get their food and uh it 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 captures the subculture that exists in new york in, in just an incredible way i think yeah i agree and without an ounce of pity or condescension i mean he doesn't make a big deal out of the cops or you know uh, he's not He's not making a social affairs movie at all, right? but he's using that and you learn, yes, and you learn a lot about all of that. And, you know, people weren't making movies about people like this no. in those days. These two characters are, are from some other world than the general world of Hollywood and American film. And so in that sense, it's, it's also a, a breakthrough. It broke a lot of barriers, both in terms of popular culture and the treatment of homosexuality and other things. Um, but in this way, it really takes you somewhere we haven't been very often. Let's talk about, I want to talk about John Voight a little bit. I know, I want to, thank you, Ileana. I was, I want to, I was going to save it for last almost because Oh, okay. I've seen, I just, I mean, we can talk about it now since you brought it up. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not editing the show, pre-editing the show. I, but I, I, um, I just watched it again. Unlike you, I have, I can watch it. I watched it when the Criterion came out. Watch the opening with the great song. Yeah. We're going to get to that too. But, but I watched it not long ago when they released it, the Criterion collection released it. They have that. Yeah. It's a beautiful Blu-ray rendition of it. And, um, I then watched it again, of course, while I was reading the book because I wanted just to be, to be all those moments to be fresh. And um, every time I watch it, I mean, especially when they, when I saw it after probably a number of years when the Criterion came out, I was tearing up at John Voight's performance, which I don't remember doing when I was younger and I'd seen it two or three times before. 
But now, and then this last time the other day when I watched it again, I um, just have a deeper and deeper appreciation for that performance. John Voight. Well, again, he's a well-trained New York actor. He's an interesting guy because he's he's got incredible self-confidence, you know, and he's 100% in for everything. Uh, and yet he's he has no experience in a movie, but he wants this part desperately. He's read the novel. Uh, he thinks he can do, do Joe Buck, and he's afraid nobody else can, you know. He was fascinating to talk to because, you know, he's now he's, you know, he's in his early 80s. He's been in so many movies. Um, he's got this kind of right wing political thing going. I didn't know what it was going to be about. And it started out a little rough, the interview. But then he looked at me at one point and says, well, you're here to talk about Midnight Cowboy. And from then on, it was all everything changed. I mean, he's so generous about the movie. He knows what a break it was. He's well trained coming into it. He know he understands the character that there's comedy in it that the sort of country mouse coming to you know the big city and all that 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 there is a comic element he understands that Joe Buck is a respectful person he's nice to his elders he loves his grandmother but at the same time he gets the fact that there's something destroyed within this guy something that's been deeply damaged by growing up in in a, such isolation in Texas this guy is sort of God's lonely man. Voight understands all of that and he really wants to do it. He has a terrible time getting the part because he doesn't look like the midnight cowboy like Joe Buck from the novel. And John Schlesinger has his own notions of male, you know, of of what men look like. And he wants somebody dark haired and tall and he wants Michael Sarazen, ultimately very handsome, you know, French Canadian actor. And they offer it to Michael Sarazen and they uh, even start, you know, measuring him for the costumes but then Universal, which has Sarazen under contract, asks for uh, more money. And, uh, and Jerry Hellman, uh, you know, they're on a very tight budget from United Artists. So they start, you know, looking at the uh, audition tapes again. And they said every time they looked at Michael Sarazen, he looked a little worse. And every time they looked at John Voight, he looked a little better. They talked themselves into it. But Marion Doherty had pushed this really hard to get Voight in the movie. She felt he had the range to do that, that that bit of violence, that the violence and the vulnerability, she thought Voight could pull that off. And in the end, you know, uh, and she pushed him hard at one point. She storms out of when they're looking at these auditions and Jerry says, what's the matter, Marion? And he says, I, you know, um, what's the matter? You're about to make a huge mistake. That's what's the matter. Um, you know, by hiring Sarazen rather than Voight. So he gets it and he just, he just buries himself in it. He, um, he's from Yonkers. He's like the closest thing to a real New Yorker in this film company group, except for Jerry himself. His accent is a Yonkers accent. I, I've watched his audition tape. The, the accent, he tries to move it south. I said he got as far as like somewhere between Yonkers and Texas, like maybe in Philadelphia or somewhere. It's, 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 it's no good at all. So he takes his little tape recorder, goes down to Texas and spends a week or two and comes back. And, and Schlesinger suggests raising the voice an octave, which I guess actors can do, Ileana. I, you know, I, I, I was stunned to see and hear his real voice versus this. And suddenly he's Joe Buck. And uh, Anne Roth fits, outfits him beautifully in a costume that is sort of, as she said, something you would have gotten at Montgomery Wards, you know. Yeah. Um, it's very distinctive. She sews the jacket herself, you know, to, to get 
to make it distinctive. Uh, and there he is on the streets of New York, and he is this naive Texas guy. And he's building the character from inside. He and Hoffman are challenging each other and working together. Two guys, not friends. I mean, they hadn't worked together in New York. They knew about each other, but they weren't close by any means. Um, but they really understood how much they needed each other. And Hoffman, you know, is is Hoffman is committed to, to getting this and getting it right. So they're 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 challenging each other occasionally, as someone will say to the other, "Come on, buddy, you got to raise your game a little bit here, otherwise it's all going to be on." You know, they're going to just have me in the scene, <laughs> and and so the, the, there's a little bit of that going on and. He just gets it, doesn't he? I mean, his it's the more naturalistic performance, I would say. Maybe because we don't know John Voight when we first see the movie. We don't know who he is. He just seems to be Joe Buck all the way through. Yeah. With it's Hoffman, it's a little more of a performance because we know Hoffman already. And, you know, but with Voight, it's just all like this guy. Well, yeah, and it's very stripped down. Maybe that's not accurate. But there's so many moments where he just doesn't say anything, but he's just observing others. And it's that look in his eye of, uh, it's so vulnerable. You know, there's a vulnerability. It's very moving. It's very moving. Yeah, in this, the, the little scene in the cafeteria where the woman sits down with, the, with the, you know, with her son across from him. And she he's watching as she's... She's obviously high on something and she's running this toy mouse up and down him. And just the expression on his face, like, boy, what the hell is this? You know? Yeah. It's, it's, he's like a little boy. He's, he's, he's on a certain level. He's a little boy. And you yeah. see that in his eyes. It's, it's in the eyes. It, it's all in the eyes. I think he and Hoffman have a classic um, kind of actors dynamic. You know, did they ever, did Voight ever talk about um, objectives that they had in playing the scenes? Because so many of the scenes are, you know, th- that's what it seems like to me. Just two act, two bulls, you know, going at each other. Yeah, um, no, he didn't directly address that. Um but they had talked everything through. I mean, even after the script was done and, you know, and the, uh, and the rehearsals were over and they're making it, they're sitting having lunch every day and they're talking about masturbation or reincarnation or, you know, they're, they're just talking about things as it, we're at so and Joe or sitting there, you know, right. over, over lunch, just going on. They never let up. And so whatever it is they're about to do, they're working they're working this intimacy or and this competition. I mean, in many ways, it reflects the two characters. I mean, you know, there's their own sense of competition. You see those wonderful moments, you know, in the X flat in this shabby, you know, squat where, uh, you know, when Hoffman says, when Ratso says things like, you know, you're beginning to smell, and that's not a good thing for a hustler in New York, you know. I mean, it's got, you can see Dustin Hoffman having improv that for a while, you know, and then it's built into the script again. And and Joe coming back and them arguing about who's gay and who isn't, you know, all that. I mean, this is stuff they've worked on endlessly. Uh, it sometimes drove Schlesinger crazy. I think, Adam, you mentioned the fact that Voight suggested, or uh, that Hoffman suggested they be filmed in bed together at some point. I think Ileana uh, said that, actually. But. Yeah, uh, uh, Hoffman also. Oh, Ileana, yeah, Hoffman also suggested at one point that Ratso should be seen sitting, having an African American guy sit next to him at the counter, and then 
rats are walking out because he's a racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and Schlesinger said to both these things, oh, thank you very much, Dustin. Those are terrific ideas. We're already making a movie nobody's ever want to see. And you're <laughs> suggesting we add these little touches to it. <laughs> you know, so their, their, their level of commitment and, and, their, uh, and their level of collaboration is just off the charts. Did either one talk about um, the effects? The po- Are there any post effects? Like, how do you get rid of this character of Joe? Yeah. That's interesting. They, they didn't talk so much about that as what do you do next? Right. Uh, Voight is suddenly, suddenly he's a movie star. Yeah. And, um, and Voight wants to do great work. I mean, yeah, sure. He wants the money and all that, but, but, you know that he he's just such a committed person. Both these guys are are just obsessed uh, with doing important work. So it takes Voight has trouble. I mean, he makes the Revolutionary a movie, and he's very very good in it. And it's a pretty good movie actually, but goes nowhere. He turns down Love Story. You know, he turns down Jaws. You know, uh, <laughs> he turns down the part that your that Richard Dreyfus did. Yeah. You know, and Jaws. He. He can't find his footing and he's and um, and it's partly his own fault because he just he has to do what he has to do. It's more he doesn't know what to do with fame. He makes some other great movie. I mean, deliver. He's wonderful in deliverance. And that comes fairly early. But there's no blueprint for these guys. That's the downside of losing the studio system. They would have been in two or three movies a year. Hoffman manages to navigate this a little better. He may have had better management. You know, he himself, I don't know. I don't know why Hoffman is more successful than Voight in the 70s um, because they both have it's a trouble getting their footing, but, but Hoffman's movies are generally more memorable. That was the big problem for them. I, I don't know. Voight was such a boy scout. He would pick up homeless people on the street, you know, that sort of thing. But I think Propelled by the Graduate, he had an advantage to the roles, Hoffman. I mean, that maybe. And maybe, uh, you know, Hoffman was just, he's just really, really, what's the word, uh, a shrewd, I mean, on a level that we we take for granted. Well, you know, with Void also people. goes into making Catch-22 with Mike Nichols, and that is a very problematic long shoot. And my understanding was always that he was very unhappy with his his idea of how to play the part, and Nichols did not mesh at all. And sometimes something like that can can get you off track. Yeah, I'm sure it didn't help, though. He's very good in Catch Twenty Two. I love him. In it. Yeah, I think he's he, one of the best. He was not happy with his it. standards were just so high, and his insistence, and he, you know, and John Schlesinger had allowed him a lot of room. He'd rope him back in, and you know, there were moments when Schlesinger confesses later that he's fed up with. He was fed up with both these guys at times. But nonetheless, I mean, he and Voight had a very close partnership in that movie, and he, and Schlesinger admired what Voight did, and Voight felt that Schlesinger helped him a lot. So he was used to that, and Mike Nichols, especially trying to rope in Catch-22, and Mike had so many problems in that movie. I mean, you 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 know, I love Mark Harris's book just like you do. Yeah. Uh, you know, so Mike Nichols just wasn't going to give Voight 
what the, the kind of partnership that he that Voight wanted and sure that that didn't help matters uh well he and also then we should mention i i'd like to mention that Voight went on to do coming home with hal ashby and that that was a tremendous tremendous another tremendous uh, success so he, he's he, wonderful in that yeah. and and it showed it's brave. it it's a brave it, it, and it showed that he could be a leading man a sec very sexy leading man even sitting in a wheelchair for a whole right. movie i mean yeah, no, Void is an actor's actor. I mean, he's as, you know, I think he's uh, he's always good, even in a lot of not so great movies. And Emory but it was hard fantastic. for him. He is. You can't deny that he's. Did either actor talk about any sort of particular great direction they received from Schlesinger? I know Hoffman then worked with him again in Marathon Man, um, but did they mention anything? anything specific about his technique of directing? Well, um, I mean, Voight mentioned Schlesinger's suggestion that he raise his voice an octave mm-hmm. and that really unlocked some things for him right. uh, and, and helped him in forming it. Um, but I'm trying to think whether Hoffman, whether there was any specific thing, just the encouragement, um, you know, to take what they were doing. So, you know, the great moment Schlesinger recalls, of course, is is when they're going to this psychedelic party in this last part of the movie, in the last half of the movie, and and Ratso, they've been coming through the snow. Incidentally, it's filmed in June in New York, and you know, coming through, the, and and they're in the foyer to go up the steps, and and Ratso is is in bad shape. He's sweating, and and Voight combs his hair for him. Joe Buck combs Ratso's hair. And, and Ratso reaches out and touches Voight's midriff with the, the shirts come up. That, that's the actors. That wasn't, the Schlesinger, Schlesinger looked at that and was just astonished and, and, and told him so. And, and so the know, characters uh, had a life of their own at that point and they, 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 they bonded, I mean, on this emotional, visceral, very beautiful level. It was that moment was crystallized right there Schlesinger just he knew at that point I mean already he had a lot of confidence in these guys and his ability to express that confidence and to joke around with them and you know uh, all of that I don't I think he let them be who they were Waldo in some ways was almost more important to their forming the characters because they would call call Waldo in and he would come in and explain scenes to them the 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 great scene when joe buck comes back from his night with shirley and he's got money at last and he's gonna be you know now he's gonna have that male hustler career he always wanted but there's ratso dying in front of him and as and they couldn't figure out how to play that the two guys with the lines It, it just seemed too a little sweet and sickly that joe goes leaves from there to go out well waldo comes in bleary eyed you know they call him in and he explains that, no, Joe isn't actually feeling, you know, affection towards Ratso and commitment to him. He wants to get rid of Ratso at this point. He wants, you know, he's saying goodbye to Ratso. And that unlocked it for Void, especially, how to play that scene. Um, and and it works beautifully. It's no longer, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kids smirking and happy with each other. It's something very much more real. And uh, and yet Joe has to is still committed to Ratso. So those kinds of things were very helpful. But Schlesinger just loved what they were doing uh, in these kind of moments. And he, he he called Waldo in to help them at times. But that's what I got out of that. Uh, it's 
Um, uh, you brought up the Andy Warhol. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. I mean, I, right, Elian? I mean, I mean, but I, I great I side the, part the, of the yeah, film, whole, Andy whole, Warhol's jealousy of the yeah, thing that a, they made. Let's leave that out. maybe for uh, as a to dangle in front of potential readers. By the way, let's emphasize the name of the book is called "Shooting Midnight Cowboy: Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic." by the great Glenn Frankel, who uh, I'm so glad that we're, we're doing this. Um, I, before we stop, I, we should have to mention Everybody's Talking. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a, an incredible song. It's, I downloaded that album, Ariel uh, Ballet, I think it's called. Yeah. Which was uh, this early Harry Nilsson album where, you know, his producer, uh, or, or I think, insisted that he include this sort of obscurish uh, Fred Neal folk singer song on the album and, and Nelson's kind of pushed back a little saying, you know, I just want to do my own songs. That's what I do. And he goes, no, he needs sissy. It ended up on the album. And then that ended up like, I guess who, who heard it and, and how did it end up on the, in the, in the, uh, to be like, like coming out of the graduate almost where again, where Dustin Hoffman was, where music plays such an incredible role, that song it becomes iconic. Yeah, it's everybody Michael- else wanted to. Oh, I'm sorry, everybody also. He, they were Joey Mitchell and your corner. I mean, he he had the top of the top wanting to submit a song for that movie. He, he did. It's Michael Childers who's kind of John puts him in charge of bringing in albums. You know, these old albums we used to have, and 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 it's Michael who brings them Ariel Ballet. And, and, and they hear everybody's talking and it just, it talks to John, you know, it, it, he likes the rhythm of it. He starts thinking about cutting the movie to this. He doesn't think he's going to actually use it in the movie itself. You know, it's a temp track kind of thing. Um, but, and, and all these other great performers come along. Bob Dylan offers him Lay Lady Lay. Uh, you know, Joni Mitchell writes a Midnight Cowboys song. But none of them, but John is, is falling in love with the song, not only the rhythm of everybody's talking, but the enigmatic, poignant nature of the lyrics. Everybody's talking at me, can't hear a word they're saying, only the shadows of my mind. You know, this captures Joe's loneliness and sol- solitude and, and, you know, trying to create a world, a home for himself, a place he can go to where the sun's shining, all of that just works for John. Because it isn't narrating the, you know, the, the, the story. It's enhancing it, and it's putting you inside this enigmatic figure. And so uh, he sticks to it. And United Artists isn't happy about this either because they don't own the rights to everybody's talking. It was on this earlier album. Uh, they and and even Har- and Harry Nielsen, you know, as just didn't write the song, and he's ambivalent. And he goes out and writes another song with the same rhythm um i guess the lord must be in new york city which is a perfectly good song great song but 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 too literal and the same rhythm and everything and you know but too literal for john he loves the the enigmatic quality of 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 everybody's talking and he sticks with it and he it's a very smart move because in the end it's one of the things that really ties that movie that gives you a gives you its own story you know, um, to go along with, with the story that you're seeing on the screen. 
And uh, it's what you remember. You know, there's several memorable things about that movie, the way they're dressed and the, the music are such an important part. And you're right, it comes after The Graduate. And that's important because John has seen for the first time what music can do for a movie. And he loves it. And he then he hires John Barry to be the musical director for the movie. And John brings in all kinds of other, Barry brings other, all kinds of other things in that also enhance it. Barry says John Schlesinger was the best director he ever worked with in terms of understanding what movie, you know, what music can do for a movie. And, and this movie has it. And, and the great Toots Thelman too. That's uh, John Barry wrote that theme. It's the midnight cowboy theme and it's a harmonica, uh, you know, in that wonderful toward at the end of the first third of the movie where Joe Buck, is basically busted. He's been kicked out of his cheap hotel. He's got the various predators like Sylvia Miles, the Sylvia Miles character and others have stripped him of his wallet of whatever money he's got. And he's walking the streets and there's no dialogue. It's simply images of Joe Buck moving around on 42nd Street, looking at a few other faux cowboys who are hanging out underneath movie marquees and saying, eventually looks at himself in the mirror and says, you know what you got to do, cowboy. And um, and which leads to the Bob Balaban scene. But the the, the thing is playing and it's sort of, I didn't do anything with the idea that this was a cowboy movie, you know, in the end, I thought that was a little too, but, but this moment where we're hearing this, this wailing harmonica, you could be like in a Canyon somewhere out in Wyoming. Um, It has that feel and it just captures how absolutely isolated this poor guy is. It's, and it's so beautifully done. And you notice they, they redo both songs right at the end of the film. They do, they do the harmonica theme and they do everybody's talking. Everybody's talking is for the bus with the energy of the bus, but then the harmonica theme sort of closes it out. And I I remember, of course, and I also had the soundtrack along with the paperback. (laughs) It's it's a terrific soundtrack. Yeah, it is. It's it's been reissued in a two CD thing, which is quite, quite interesting to see. It drives my wife crazy when I play it all the time, but it's really quite (laughs) wonderful. Well, and I just want to insert that we left out um, Brenda Vaccaro, and there's lots we, we, I mean, there's so much to talk about, I feel like, but I... I, I and the famous, wait, we were, we're skipping over the most famous, the iconic shot, stolen shot in the movie where Dustin Hoffman says, I'm walking here. Oh, right, very good. That's Which very may good. or may not have been... It's covered. That's part of, that was also part of Oscar lore. I mean, I, there was never an Oscar recap, was there, without that scene? No, right. Exactly. That's it. That's the most memorable moment. The two iconic shots of, uh, in any Chuck Workman Oscar recap were always Midnight Cowboy. Always John Voight walking down the street and then I'm walking here. It's the best. It is... You know, in a hundred years of cinema, it is it is one of the great moments. It is, and it's so classic New York. <laughs> that that's the New York I knew and and was frightened by <laughs> yeah. back when I was a kid. And it looks real. I'm gonna get you know who knows if it was you know if it really happened and then it was staged. I, you know, on movies you never really know, but it looks it looks like a car really is about to hit them. Well, it's it's in the book. The okay. full anecdote. I mean, it's 
pages of this book, this fantastic book. Glenn, thank you so much. Uh, I mean, my only thing I'm disappointed or sad about is that we have to wait a few more years till that we can do this again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, was, I was thrilled when I found out I was going to do this with you guys. Again, I love Mark Harris. I mean, you, you're doing so many interesting people. And so for me, this is like recognition in a way that I really wasn't expecting. Um, I, I love the book's gotten a good reception and I'm very pleased about that. Um, and I just was so fortunate, you know, I, I knew this would be an interesting movie, but I had no idea just how rich it would be and, and, and how many aspects of life in the 60s it would cover. So thanks for having me, both of you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's so encompassing, not only for mov- movie lovers, but the gay culture, the the filmmakers. That's what's so in- extraordinary to me is that the film is so universal because it's about a dream that's always out of reach, mm. you know? And I think that the subject matter is secondary. And that's why when, if we were kids, I think that what I saw in the movie was the, the love between the two men and, the, and, you know, him being a male hustler was secondary. It was, you know, what stayed with me was their, was their love for each other and they're, you know, they're, that they have a dream. And I think that that is why the movie is universal and, and, hold, know, and just, holds up. These the little things that I discover, I kind of, Ileana, like when you're talking about that, it's like by the time they make that stop on the ride down to Florida and they get rid of their clothes, it's a big moment, which is almost disposable in, in, or treated disposably in the sense that, well, he's disposing of their clothes, but both of their clothes, they're shedding that, fake well and and maybe it's not fake but it's it's like a new skin they were developing and unfortunately ratso doesn't make it but he made it into florida alive and and he got rid of those clothes and and i don't know it's a powerful moment and and then joe's like uh rather yeah joe is like you know maybe uh that that was never really that was never gonna work (laughs) like you said it's not the right business model i think uh just get a job and because you know he achieved something which was love friendship he 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 never had it before so he didn't need to do that other stuff that wasn't going to get him that you know yeah it's a great moment and schlesinger treats it as you say, I mean, he tells it, he doesn't romanticize it. We don't really know what's going to happen to Joe Buck when the movie's over, but um, we buy that this is real. And I think that was Schlesinger's great art. And I, I totally agree with you both. This is the reason we this movie's worth watching 52 years, years later. The core of the movie, the emotional core of these two vulnerable life's, you know, lonely men finding something some you know way of living in the world is is a theme that will speak for generations i'm quite sure well i love thank you so much for writing the book i learned so much and it was so entertaining you know it was fun i mean they were because these these characters are so interesting they just they just pulled it along once I got into the movie part I mean I I actually I find writing very difficult and painful at times but this time it was easier in a way because these folks are just I just want they just leap off the page so 
made my did job. You have, did you have access to any production notes and things like that also, or did you mainly interviews? Uh, I had all of those notes of revise of constant revisions of the script. All that's at Waldo's papers at UCLA. I had Jerry Hellman's unpublished account of the making of the movie, which he was very generous in, in giving me. It's frustrating. I really wanted, you know, a schedule, you know, of the film shoot and, and Jerry doesn't have it and nobody seems to have it. And that, I had reconstructed as much of it as I could, but I really would have liked to have known exactly when things were done. And, and, you know, uh, it was, so that was frustrating, but the, the amount of writing that Waldo did and then some that John did was pretty major. And uh, Waldo, so, you know, I, I may do with all of that. Well, terrific. Well, thank you both. All righty, Glenn, Adam. I now I have to go back to work. Okay, thanks. Thank you both so much. I mean, thank this you, was really Thank you. All have right, Eliana, take care. Okay. Hope you Bye. Bye.